morning, everyone. Okay, we're going uh, Acts 1, I mean Acts 8, I'm sorry, 1 through 8. Acts 8. Saul was in heartily heartly agreement with putting them to death. And on the day of great persecution began against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the region of Judas, Samaria, except the apostles. Some devoted men buried Stephen and loud, made loud lamentations over him. But Saul began ravishing the church, entering house after house, and dragging men and women. He would put them in prison. Therefore, those who had been scattered went on about preaching the word, Philip went down to Samaria and began proclaiming church to them. The crowds, with one accord, were giving attention to what he was saying by Philip, what was said by Philip. And they heard and saw the signs which he was performing. For within the case of many who had unclean spirits, there was a command out of, the, out of them, shouting with loud spirits, shouting with loud voices, and many who had been paralyzed and lame were healed. So there was much rejoicing in that city. Okay, please stay standing for the next hymn. Say good morning to everyone. If I missed anyone, good morning, good morning, Sheila. Um, it's good to have each one here. Thankful for each one of you. Um, I do want to start by saying how thankful we can be for our freedoms. Thank you for the prayer, Patrick. Thank you for leading in worship, Patrick and Tracy, and for that missions moment again. Samaritan's Purse, what a name for a ministry, hey? We're going to be looking at Philip going down to Samaria. We touched on that a little bit today. Um, but we are thankful for our freedoms, and they are afforded to us by God, but it's because of our veterans that that is the case. And, we, and we've already recognized them today, but you know, it wouldn't hurt to recognize them again. Maybe as you're leaving, shake the hand of someone who has served. Um, it was sacrificial service to our nation and to us that has been performed for us. Cindy's dad and, and two of his brothers served in World War II in the Pacific. One of them didn't come home. We wouldn't be here if it wasn't for the fact that people were willing to serve in that way. Um, Acts chapter 8 verse 4 through 8 I know uh, Steve read uh, 1 through 8 for us, but we're going to be in verses just 4 through 8. We will look back just briefly at 1 through one through 3. Luke, when he writes the Gospel of Luke and the book of Acts, he is um, talking about another kind of freedom. Today, uh, we're talking about Memorial Day, which is tomorrow, where we celebrate our freedoms and, and those that serve to, to uh, bring about those freedoms or to preserve those freedoms, maybe is a better way of saying that. But Luke is talking about another kind of freedom. In fact, the entire Bible talks about another kind of freedom. It is a freedom that is only to be found in Jesus Christ. And Today in our text, Luke is introducing his reader, and that's us today, to the next phase in the development of the church, to the next phase in the development of the church. It's leaving Jerusalem, and it's going on to Judea and Samaria. Uh, this building, we rent this building from Lloyd 
Barker. Lloyd, when I first met him, maybe four, four and a half, almost five years ago now, when I first met him, was talking about the fact that he was going to develop this property and he was going to build a building over there and he was going to build a couple of buildings back here and he was going to pave the parking lots. And he was talking about that what that would look like. As the developer of the property, he had a vision of that. Now, I could only halfway understand what that was going to look like, but he had a vision of that. And as, as God is developing the church, he knows what that's supposed to look like. He knows what that is going to be like. He, he knows all the details out before him. And as the book of Acts closes, I'm in the wrong book, I'm in Romans. As the book of Acts closes, if you'd turn there with me just briefly, the last, go to Acts 28, the last couple of verses. It closes in this way. Acts, Acts 28, 28 through 30. Or through 31, I should say. Therefore, let it be known to you that this salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles. They will also listen. When he had spoken these words, the Jews departed, having a thank you, having a great dispute among themselves. And he stayed two full years in his own apart in his own rented quarters, rather. and was welcoming all who came to him, preaching the kingdom of God and teaching concerning the Lord Jesus Christ with all openness, unhindered. If you were to put a sign at the end of this, with regard to what I'm talking about, with regard to the development of the church, the sign would be under construction. It, the church is still growing, it's still progressing, and it's still the case today, under construction but we're, we're, we're given this little snapshot in the book of Acts, Acts 8, uh, 4 through 8, as to some of the development of the church. And, and what I want to talk to you about today, what I want to put before us today is this. The title of this message is Counting It All Joy. And this is what I want to say to you today. If you don't think of anything else, remember anything else, I want you to remember this. That for the gospel-centered church, for the gospel-centered church, church it is joy all the way for the gospel centered church it is joy all the way before i go any further let me pray my mind's racing i got these different glasses on i'm hoping i can be able to see you and read the text that's in front of me <laughs> so we need to ask the lord's blessing on this time okay heavenly father i want to thank you for this time thank you for your word father i pray you calm my heart down Help us, as Patrick has prayed, to, to look into your word and um, to be blessed from it, to be encouraged by it, to be challenged by it. And if there's something we need to move on or to act on, Father, would you reveal that to us as well? Father, bless our time. Keep me from saying anything I should not say. May you be pleased with what is proclaimed and our response to it. In Jesus' name, for his glory, amen. Look at the first word in our text today. Acts 8, verse 4. The first word is what? It's therefore. Therefore. What do we ask every time we see a therefore? We learn this. I learned this pretty early as a Christian. What is the therefore? Therefore. 
And it's there because it looks back to what is just prior to that. And what's back? Just behind that therefore. It's the death of Stephen and the persecution that has come on the church. And, and so Luke is about to write some things regarding that. He says, therefore, because of the death of Stephen, because of the persecution that's come on the church, there's some things that you need to know. Theophilus, lover of God. It's the first word in our text, and that's what we're going to look at right now. And, and I've shared with you the focus of this message is for the gospel-centered church, it's joy all the way. And it's joy even in the midst of persecution. That's the first point of my message. It's joy even in the midst of the persecution. This word, therefore, looks back to that persecution. These glasses aren't going to work. I can't see what I'm looking at. I'm putting these ones on. Now you guys are going to be blurry, but that's better than not being able to see what I'm looking at, right? Okay. This looks back to 8.1, where it says, Saul was in hearty agreement with putting him to death. That's Stephen. And on that day, a great persecution began against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except, except the apostles. This therefore looks back to that, to the persecution. And what I want to say with regard to that, and, and, and the joy that the church can have, it's joy all the way for the Christ-centered church, the gospel-centered church, is that persecution is to be expected. We talked about that last week, or I touched on it at least. You guys listened to me say it. Persecution is to be expected, and, and we know that. Anyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. It is to be expected. In fact, uh, Peter, in 1 Peter uh, chapter 4, verse 12 and 13, says this, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you which comes upon you for your testing as though some strange thing were happening to you. He, he says, expect it. Expect it. He goes on to say that when you're, when you're undergoing that persecution, let me see if that verse is on there. It's not. He goes on to say in verse 13, when you're undergoing that persecution, you're participating in the sufferings of Christ. And, he, and then he goes on to say from there, and when that happens, you are to keep on rejoicing. Keep on rejoicing. This is 30 years after this time. Peter's there. He's, he's seen this. He's witnessed Stephen stoning. He's seen the church leave Jerusalem, or a big part of it. I think the Hellenistic Jews mostly have left. The, the, the Hellenistic Jew that were a part of the body of Christ have left the city of Jerusalem. We'll get to that in a second here. But Peter's seen that. Now, 30 years later, he's writing this. What's he saying with regard to that? Persecution. It happens. It happens. But keep on rejoicing. Something else with regard to persecution. Yes, it does happen, but it doesn't always happen. We're going to get to the end of Acts 9, Lord willing, when we get there, toward the end of Acts 9, Acts 9.31, it says this, So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria enjoyed peace, being built up and going on in the fear of the Lord, in the comfort of the Holy Spirit. It continued to increase. So persecution happens, but it doesn't happen all the time. We are in a place where we don't struggle with that kind of persecution, right? We're just not struggling with it. But we see in our video this morning from our missions moment that there are believers who are who are in that place but whatever the case whether whether it's in times of persecution or times of increase and things are going along swimmingly and just fine 
The church ought to increase. There ought to be joy. It should be joy all the way. So it's to be expected, but not always. It does happen. Persecution happens. It made it impossible. It made it impossible for these Hellenistic Jews. Saul was making it impossible for them to stay in Jerusalem. Again, I think this persecution is most likely centered on those Greek speaking or those Hellenistic Jews were first introduced to them in Acts 6 1. There's a distinction made between the Hebraic Jews and the Hellenistic Jews. The Hellenistic Jews are just Greek speakers. They're culturally Greek as well. And they'd stand out. Uh, we've got a bunch of grandkids. I'm going to talk about them to brag. I'm one of them right now. One of them's a little redheaded guy about this big. His name is Henning. And if Henning came in here and started talking to you, you'd know right away that kid's not from Utah. You would know instantly. I mean, he sounds like the coach of the Packers, right? He, he, he's got this Uper accent. You think I got an accent? You should see, you should hear his. You might not understand what he's saying sometimes. But these these Hellenistic Jews would have stood out, and Stephen was one of them. And so now I think the Hellenistic Jews are the ones that are targeted for this persecution because they stand out like that. So that's what the therefore is there for. There is this persecution that has come. Look at what it says next in Acts. Chapter 8, verse 4. Therefore, those who had been scattered went about preaching the word. It says, those who had been scattered. Who are these people? Who had been scattered? Believers. Believers and their families. Imagine you're a believer. You've just come to faith in Christ and your wife has come to faith in Christ and now you've got um, young Brendan and young Lucius and I don't know who's all a part of your family and, and, and you've got to leave Jerusalem. You've got to scatter. You've got to go. Imagine all the, all the details with that. You've got to find a place to live when you get to where you're going. And you don't even know where you're going. Maybe you're going to go live with some other relatives or something, but it would have been difficult. They, they were scattered. They were moved out. They were believers that were scattered. Those for whom it could be said, heard the word and believed. Those for whom it could be said had heard the word and believed. And I just want to stop right there and say right now that you can be saved. I'm speaking to a room that I'm assuming is full of believers. I don't know that 100% though. And I want to say to each person that is here within the sound of my voice, you can be saved. And not only can you be saved, you can know it. You can know that you are saved. You can trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. You can know, hey, I'm a sinner. That's not too hard to know. We all know we're sinners. No one has to convince you of that. Let me prove it. What's the last thing you did that you know God was not honored by? The last thing you did that you know that did not honor God when I did that. Last thought, last action, last word. We don't need, we know we're sinners. All of sin and falls short of the glory of God. And the wages of sin is death. In other words, you can't stand before a holy God in your sins. But Jesus has come and paid the price that you couldn't pay. He died on the cross to pay the price that you couldn't pay, that you might have a that you might have a righteousness through him. God made him who knew no sin to become sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in him. You can be saved. You can be saved. And you can know it. You can know you're saved. 
But these are, these are believers. They've been, they've been scattered. They've been chased out. Something else I'd point out. That's those. These are the people. It says, who had been. Now I know that Luke is saying this. Therefore, those who had been scattered. Luke is saying that in the past tense because he's writing that to Theophilus. He's writing that to us. He's writing it in the past tense. This is something that has happened. That's why he says those who had been. But I think it's also true that these believers have put that persecution behind them. They put it behind them. I'm saying to you today that for the gospel-centered church, it's joy all the way. And I see that in these believers as they are scattered. They are not... Look, when they leave, when they are scattered, they... Stephen is mourned for, that's for sure. Something has happened to them, that is for sure. But their focus doesn't come off the gospel. Stephen's didn't. As he's being stoned, his focus does not come off the gospel. What happened yesterday is behind them. It's not before them. It's not in front of them. Just, just, a, just kind of a side rabbit trail here, but probably all of us know how the past can steal our joy. Eh? The past can steal our joy. We, we've got baggage. But it doesn't have to. It doesn't have to. For the Christian, for the Gospel-centered Christian, for the Gospel-centered church, it is joy all the way. If, if you're centered on your past, yeah, it can be hard to shake that. But if you're centered on the Gospel, if you're centered on Christ, it's joy all the way. Your past doesn't have to hound you. They've put this behind them. They've been scattered. Think of the rich man and Lazarus. I'm talking about the fact for the Gospel-centered church, it's joy all the way. Think about the rich man and Lazarus. Everyone probably knows that story. Jesus tells the story of the rich man of Lazarus. The rich man has everything he wants in this life. He's just enjoying this life, doing whatever he wants. Lazarus doesn't have anything. He's poor. He's a beggar. He's wishing he could eat the crumbs from the rich man's table. Both of them die. Lazarus goes to be in Abraham's bosom. The rich man goes to Hades. He's not going to be with the Lord. Some things with regard to him. He knows who he is. He knows where he's at. He knows where he knows where Lazarus is at. And he's told, and he, he and he asked, "Have Lazarus bring a drip of water from his finger and put it on my tongue? I'm in agony here." He knows all of that. He knows all of that. There's no joy where he's at. He's in torment. He's in agony. But you know what's really interesting there? that rich man suddenly becomes gospel-focused. He's got five brothers. He says, send Lazarus. tells Father Abraham, send Lazarus to my father's house. I have five brothers. I don't want them to end up where I'm at. His desire for his brothers is that they would experience gospel joy. Gospel joy. This rich man tells us just just read it today. It's in, in, in Luke 16, 19-31. I thought we'd turn there. We don't have time to do that. But it tells me as I read that narrative, 
that joy, gospel joy, extends beyond the grave. It extends beyond the grave, and it's, it's joy everlasting, eternal joy. Eternal joy. For the gospel-centered church, the gospel-centered Christian, it's joy all the way, even in the midst of persecution. And with the rich man of Lazarus, one more thing. You'd say, well, Lazarus wasn't persecuted. Maybe he wasn't, but he was suffering. He was suffering. But for the gospel-centered Christian, even in suffering, it's joy all the way. It's joy all the way. There's an eternal perspective to be had. I'm not saying in, in, in that, that kind of circumstance you'd be all sunshine and lollipops. But joy doesn't depend on circumstance, does it? That's, that's happiness. And, and how fleeting is happiness? I can remember being a teenager thinking about the first car I would buy, a 1963 Galaxy 500. Big 390 Ford Thunderbird engine, four barrel. Ooh, ooh, ooh. Tim, Tim, if you're a man, right? I bought that car. As soon as I had it, I didn't care that I had it. <laughs> and it's been like that all along. It, it's just like that stuff doesn't bring happiness. It's so fleeting. It's so fleeting. Okay, that's the first point. For the gospel-centered church, it's joy all the way, even in the midst of persecution. The second point is this. For the gospel-centered church, it's joy at the propagation, at the propagation of the gospel. At the propagation of the gospel. Therefore, those who had been scattered went about preaching the word. These believers were involved in the propagation of the gospel. They were spreading something abroad, right? They were spreading something abroad that it might increase i got an illustration here. You guys know we had a little dairy farm. On the North 40, about three-quarters of that was field. The rest of it was woods. And it hadn't been tilled in probably 30 years. And I decided, instead of pasturing that, I'm going to try and plow that up. I'm going to plant corn there. It wasn't a place to plant corn. I wasn't a very good crop farmer. should have gave up on that. But I tilled that up. In the fall, I dissed it a few times. Come spring, I dissed it up. I waited for it to dry up enough to go out there and plant corn. I planted corn in there. And do you know what came up? It hadn't been there. I'd been there a couple of years, maybe two or three years before I ever tried tilling it up. Do you know what came up in that field? A little bit of corn and a whole lot of mustard seed. Now, I didn't see mustard seed in that field for three years before that. I never saw mustard. I never saw mustard come up, but that mustard came up. And if the corn would have grew to its full potential, when Jesus says that birds of the air uh, can land in, in the, the mustard seed grows up to be a tree that the birds can land in, I know what he's talking about. Them mustard plants got taller than a corn plant can get. They were enormous. When they dry out, they can catch fire like crazy too. They were enormous mustard plants. Only about a little bit of that, maybe two acres was I able to ever get corn out of. That mustard came up so thick I couldn't get rid of it. But my point with that, getting on this story, right? My point, what's my point with regard to that? These believers are involved with the propagation of the gospel. When I, what happened when I, when I went out and tilled up that field? I disturbed that soil. I disturbed that ground. And those seeds that were already in the ground came sprouting up out of the ground and it got me to thinking about the fact that Jesus spent two whole days in Samaria when he meets the woman at the well he spends two whole days there in Samaria 
there were some seeds planted there. And, and, and way back in the history of those folks, there's some seeds there as well. But these believers are going in to Judea and Samaria and they're scattering seed everywhere. Everywhere. It's interesting to know that just how far the gospel gets and the apostles aren't with them. The apostles are not with them. They're actively sharing their faith. It just seems to bubble out of them. They can't help but share their faith. They are forced out of Jerusalem and there they are sharing their faith. And that got me to thinking about this. As the church, we should never get so comfortable here that the gospel becomes secondary. We should never get so comfortable here that the gospel becomes secondary. That's a pretty simple thing to say. But it's a pretty easy place to get to where the gospel just becomes secondary. I'm reminded of it pretty often. I kind of get busy in my thoughts about things and things are happening and I got this planned and I got this planned and the next day I've got to go train someone in the truck and I sit in the truck and I'm meeting this guy brand new and he starts talking to me about spiritual things and I wasn't planning on having this conversation. That's what the Lord's trying to remind me. The gospel shouldn't be secondary. It should be first. It should be first. What does Jesus say to that man of the Gerardines, the man whom he cast all those demons out of? What, is, what, what does he say to him? Go and tell all that the Lord has done for you. Go and tell all that the Lord has done for you. The gospel should never become secondary. So for the gospel-centered church, it is joy all the way. But joy is a gladness of the heart that is present even through the trials of life. That's a good definition of joy. It's not my definition, but it's a good one. Third point, for the church, it's joy all the way because of the preparation for that gospel. I got on this and I thought this is going to take up the whole sermon time. Because of the preparation for the gospel. Ephesians, I got off here too, didn't I? Ephesians 6.15 And having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Back to our text. Therefore, those who had been scattered went about preaching what? Doing what? Preaching the Word. I, I mentioned it last week, maybe the week before. Maybe too many times you've heard me say this and you already know it. You don't even need to hear me say it. Everybody preaches something. These folks went somewhere and they're going to be preaching something. What are they going to be preaching? They're not going to be preaching themselves. And they're not going to be preaching their persecution either. It, they're not going to be preaching, woe is me. That's not what they're going to be preaching. After this persecution and being routed out of Jerusalem, they're not preaching that. Well, what is Luke set before us as central for us to know about them? What are they focused on? What are they found doing? What is central to them? It's the gospel and the spread of it. it that's what energizes them. Therefore, those who have been scattered went about preaching the Word. This is the other bookend. Uh, I think it's been three or four weeks ago. I don't know how long ago, but we read this big section of Acts. Howard did. Not we. Howard did. We follow. Um, I really struggled with that, but I thought 
Paul tells Timothy to give yourself to the public reading of Scripture, so it can't be bad, right? But we began in Acts 6.4 or Acts 6.7 where it says this, but we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the Word. And in Acts 6.7, the Word of God kept on spreading. And then he read all that all the way through to Acts 8.4, the other side of the bookend. Therefore, those who had been scattered went about preaching the Word. The focus was on the ministry of the Word. It was always the apostles' focus. It was a ministry of the Word. That's what they had. And they were ministering the Word to the early church. The early church um, committed themselves to the apostles' to prayer and to the apostles' teaching and to the preaching of the Word. They were committed to those things. And now, that's bearing fruit in the lives of those that were ministered to. I wonder how many messages these folks that were scattered, I wonder how many messages they had heard in Acts 5.42, it says, And every day in the temple and from house to house, they kept right on teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. In Acts 2.42, says something kind of similar. They were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and to the breaking of bread and to prayer. There was this commitment to the Word of God on behalf of the church, and the apostles were committed to teaching and preaching the Word of God. And I got to thinking about that. How many messages had these folks heard? How many times did they hear the gospel presented? How many times had they been reminded of the same thing that they'd been reminded of the last time and reminded of the last time? And reminded, probably quite a few times. And now all of that ministry is bearing fruit as they go out into Judea and Samaria. Therefore, those who had been scattered went about preaching the word. It's what energized them. It's what energized the early church. The gospel for the gospel-centered church, for the gospel-centered Christian, for the Christ-centered Christian, it's joy all the way because of the preparation for the propagation of the gospel. In other words, the Great Commission extends to the whole church. The apostles aren't there, and they are preaching the word. The Great Commission extends to the whole church. They preach the word. The early portions of Acts. We saw Peter and John and the apostles as prominent figures. That's beginning to change. You can just see the joy in the early church as it was gospel-centered. You can just see the joy in the early church as it was gospel-centered, as it was Christ-centered. The apostles' faithful ministry is just increasing through these folks. Ephesians 2.20, Paul writes, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the chief cornerstone. The apostolic message was passed on through the word that was preached and taught, and the church is growing. Out of that, how joyful it must have been for these Christians that were scattered to go into this new area and to proclaim the same Jesus that Stephen did, to proclaim the same Jesus that they received, and to see others respond in faith. Can you think of the first time yourself, can you think of the first time as a Christian you got to see someone else come to faith in Christ or got to be a part of that? Could you imagine how joyful it was for them to see that happening? For the gospel-centered church, it's joy all the way. It's joy all the way. Well, where did they go? 
the NAS has it, they went about preaching the word, the King James, everywhere. In other words, wherever they went, they preached the word. They had all been born somewhere. Right? All these people. They'd been born somewhere. Now they're born again. And God would have them and us gospel focused. But you'd have to have to ask the question of ourselves, where you've probably heard this before as well, where where should we go and preach the word? Well, in our Jerusalem, right? In our Jerusalem. It's the proving grounds before the mission field. Or you might say it this way, the mission field is right where you are. The mission field is right where you are. If you won't preach the word right where you are, why would God entrust you to do it beyond where you are? If you won't preach the word right where you are, why would you think when you got somewhere else you might preach the word? You probably won't. The mission field is right where you are. Within your own family. Within your sphere of people, your sphere of influence. You know what's difficult about preaching the gospel to your own family? You do. <laughs> I'm seeing some smiles. They know you. <laughs> they know everything about you. You know what's difficult about preaching the gospel or, or the word to the people you work with? They know you. They know you. But you know what the joy is? You're not preaching yourself. You're not preaching yourself. You're preaching Jesus Christ and Him crucified. This morning in Sunday school, Patrick talked about the need for a, a good testimony, and that, that is solid. We, we ought to be concerned for having a good testimony. But, but we're never going to be perfect. You could be perfect and you'd be hated for that. We're not to preach ourselves. We're to preach Jesus. That's to the last point. For the gospel-centered church, for the gospel-centered person, it's joy all the way at the preaching of the gospel. We made it to verse 5. Philip, Philip went down to the city of Samaria and began proclaiming Christ to them. Here Luke narrows our focus to a single individual believer and to the ministry of that believer. And we know something of this person. Not to be confused with the Apostle Philip, we don't need to do that. But he's just like Stephen. He's chosen out of the congregation to be a deacon. He, he was, they were told, choose seven men from among you of good reputation, full of the Spirit, and full of wisdom. We know this about Philip. This, this was his character of a good reputation, full of the Spirit and of wisdom. He's called one of the seven in Acts 21, verse 8. One of the seven. You know, that, that title, hang, it hung around for a while. These guys were chosen, the seven. And that title, the reputation, was maintained. They never lost that. Where's my title? One of the seven. He's called Philip the Evangelist in Acts 21, verse 8 as well. The Evangelist. Maybe the first evangelist. What is an evangelist? A publisher of, good, of glad tidings. That's Bible Dictionary's definition. Someone that is involved with preaching the good news of great joy to lost sinners. That's the work of an evangelist. That's the work of an evangelist. 
This is Philip the Evangelist. It's an individual with a spiritual gift. A spiritual gift that's a person that is gifted in that way that's given to the church. Ephesians 4.11 And he gave some as apostles and some as prophets and some as evangelists and some as pastors and teachers. It's someone with a spiritual gift. And why? Ephesians 4.12 goes on to say, for the perfecting of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. Until when? Until the whole body is built up to, to a mature man. For what purpose? So that we would no longer be tossed about by every wind of doctrine. Ephesians uh, 4.11-16, there's just a wonderful um, progress of thought there. And we're going to see that a lot of chapter 8, almost all of it, is about Philip and, and his ministry. And then we're not going to hear anything about him until we get to Acts 21, verse 8. And we're going to find him where Acts 8 leaves him off. He's left off there in Acts 8, at the end of Acts 8, living in Caesarea. That's where he's at. And we pick him back up 20 years later. There he is, living in Caesarea. And he, and he practices hospitality. Caesarea Philippi, not Caesarea Philippi, rather, Caesarea by the sea. But he's going to travel around a bit. I got to looking at the map of his travels. He traveled around a bit, preaching the word of God, preaching the word. But here we see that the church is already functioning, functioning as Christ intended. Here's Philip the evangelist. What a joy to be in the body of Christ and to be doing just what you are supposed to be doing and to know that's the thing you're supposed to be doing. For the gospel-centered church, it is joy all the way. Every member in the body of Christ is an important member of the body of Christ. And if the focus for the whole body is the promotion of the gospel, it's joy all the way. It's joy all the way. And here he speaks in, in, in verse 5 of Philip's direction. He went down to the city of Samaria and his actions and began proclaiming Christ to them. That's what he does when he gets where he's going. So his direction goes down to Samaria. Samaria is, Samaria is actually north of Jerusalem. If you look on a map, but here again, Luke narrows our focus. It's not just one individual believer, but it's a specific place. There's some debate as whether he went to just a city in Samaria or to the city of Samaria, the capital of that area. I think it's the city of Samaria personally. Got reasons for that, but whatever the case, it says he went down. He didn't go north. He actually went down in elevation because I learned about elevation after moving to Utah a little better than I knew of it living in Michigan, right? Jerusalem and the surrounding area, kind of north and south, is maybe, you'd have to depend on where you're at, right? Is kind of generally 1,500 to maybe 2,500 feet higher than Samaria and the surrounding areas that are north of there. So when it says he went down to Samaria, he's going down in elevation. I believe that's part of the reason he says that. And, and you know, when, when, um, talked about this in Sunday school as well as, as, as the Jews were going up to Jerusalem for those three annual feasts. They would have those Psalms of Ascent, Psalm 120 through Psalm 134 and they would sing these Psalms of Ascent. Psalm 120 starts with this, In my trouble I cried to the Lord. 
Psalm 121, I will lift up my eyes to the hills. From where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord who has made heaven and earth. Psalm 122 starts this way. I was glad when they said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord. Psalm 123 begins this way. To you I lift up my eyes, O you who are enthroned in the heavens. You get the imagery here, right? They're going up to Jerusalem. Philip goes down to Samaria. The imagery is just beautiful. Psalm 120 sings of God's presence. Psalm 121 uh, sings of a joyful praise to the Lord. Psalm 128 sings of joy for those who follow God and follow His ways. Psalm 134 sings praise to to God in His temple. But it's all focused on a place. It's all focused on a place going up to Jerusalem. And here it says that Philip goes down to Samaria and he preaches the Word of God there. He preaches the Word of God to them. Philip went down to Samaria. You know, it's no secret the Samaritans were looked down upon. I'll change the slide here. John 4, verse 9, this is Jesus with the Samaritan woman. And the Samaritan woman says to Jesus, How is it that you, being a Jew, ask me for a drink since I am a Samaritan woman? And look what it says there. For the Jews have no dealings with the Samaritans. It's no secret. It's no secret that the Samaritans were looked down upon. In Luke 9.54, Jesus has set His face sternly toward Jerusalem back toward Jerusalem and he's going to go through Samaria and he sends some some of his guys ahead of him to make preparations so they can stay the night maybe and have a meal and they're rejected in the village that they go into and the sons of thunder James and John this is what they say Lord do you want us to command fire to come down from heaven and consume them (laughs) There's, there's no love loss between the Samaritans and the Jews right now these guys, James and John, they'd just come down from the Mount of Transfiguration. They saw Moses and Elijah. And they're actually saying something that Elijah did to the Samaritans. <laughs> Elijah commanded fire to come down and, and consume 50 guys and their commanding officer. And then 50 more guys and their commanding officer. And then the next commanding officer that's sent says, hey, don't, don't do that to us. And the Pharisees themselves would avoid going through Samaria, but Jesus didn't. Jesus didn't. Samaria is not only the place of a powerful ministry performed by Philip, but it's also a significant place in biblical history. It's the capital of the northern kingdom. You know, God has brought His people out of Egypt. And they spend 40 years in the wilderness. We know the details of that. Some of the details maybe you don't know, but spend 40 years in the wilderness. And then Joshua brings them in to the promised land. And then the 12 tribes, they kind of divide up the land. At the end of Joshua, we see them doing that. And there they all are, hunky-dory. Everything's great, but not so great. And then they start asking for a king. You read that in 1 Samuel. And, And God says, you know, I'm their king. I'm their, I'm their king. But they keep asking for a king. They get a king. God tells them when you get a king, you're not going to like it. They get that king and troubles start happening. 
the nation ends up divided. There's ten tribes to the north, and their capital is Samaria. There's two tribes to the south. The capital is Jerusalem. There's animosity between those two factions, the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom, and there's, there's battles that take place. Now, not to, not to go through all that history, but what brought that division? Sin. Sin brought all that division. With regard to the northern kingdom, it is almost tedious to read when you read First and Second Kings. They never have a good king. Ever. They just never have a good king. And then their last king, I can't pronounce his name, Hoshea. He, he, makes, he makes some bad choices. And so the northern kingdom ends up captured by the king of Assyria. And that, and that king of Assyria, after he captures them, he hauls Hoshea off and and twenty some thousand of the of the Israelites, and he leaves. I think I believe he leaves some people behind there, and then he populates that whole region with people from five other nations that surround them. And what do them people bring with them? Their customs, their cultures, their gods. So it's it's this big perverted mess theologically. These are the Samaritans. They they have mixed ethnicity. They have messed up. Theology. When Jesus is meeting with a Samaritan woman, what does he say to her? You worship what you do not know. They got such a messed up theology, they don't know what they worship. And they're much a much maligned group of people. It's the Samaritans in, in Ezra chapter 4, the forefathers of the Samaritans that are called the enemies of God, and they want to go up and help in Ezra 4. They want to go up and help rebuild the temple, and they're told, no, you don't have no part in this. Imagine the animosity that is between these two groups of people, the Samaritans and the Jews. But what does Jesus say? When, when, when these guys say, when James and John say to Jesus, Lord, do you want us to command fire to come down from heaven and to consume them? Jesus says in John, I got it here, 956, for the Son of Man did not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. And they went to another village. For the Son of Man did not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. The, for the gospel-centered church, it's joy all the way because the gospel is for everyone. It's for everyone. We don't have to wonder, is the gospel for that person? That person's from this background. Is the gospel for that person? That person has that background. Is the gospel for that person? That person has that background. Is the gospel for people that come to North Valley Bible Church? The gospel for everyone. We don't have to wonder about it. It's for It's for everyone. Here are these people with a mixed ethnicity, a messed up theology, a maligned group, enemies, enemies of God. The gospel's for them. After Jesus meets with that Samaritan woman, and she goes back to her village and says, come see a man who told me everything I ever did. And the Samaritans believe him because what they told. And then they meet Jesus. He stays there with them two days. 
And they say, now, now we don't just believe because of what you said. We believe because we've, we've heard for ourselves that this is the Messiah. But in, in that framework of all that, in John 9.35, Jesus, as the woman is going actually, as the woman is going to go tell that she met the Messiah, Jesus says to his disciples this amazing thing. Behold, behold, he says to them, I say to you, lift up your eyes and look on the fields that they are white for harvest. In other words, there's gospel opportunity everywhere, guys. Can't you see it? Can't you see it? For the gospel-centered church, it's joy all the way because the gospel is for everyone. The fields are white with harvest. It's just like those seeds, those mustard seeds, in that field, the seeds have been planted. We just we got to keep planting the seed, but sometimes things just got to be tilled up. They just got to be tilled up. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and began proclaiming Christ to them. Began proclaiming Christ to them. He preached. What did he preach to them? He preached Christ to them. He preached the content of the gospel. He preached the extent of the gospel. And I'd ask you to consider God's intent for the gospel. That's what I'm pleading with you right now. Consider God's intent for the gospel. It's for everyone. Young person, old person, everyone in this room. You're thinking, hey, I don't know what that guy's going on and on about. I get the point. I want you to hear it again. The gospel's for you. The gospel's for you. If you haven't come to a personal faith in Jesus Christ, you're not going to get there by your uncle's coattails. Mom and dad's coattails. You're not going to ride in on someone else's back. You need to trust Jesus for yourself. You need to come to a saving faith in Jesus. It's not an intellectual problem you have. It's a heart problem. You're a sinner. You need to be saved. And Jesus offers salvation. The gospel's for everyone. For the gospel-centered church, it's joy all the way. We get outside that centering on the gospel and centering on Christ. The joy kind of it fades pretty fast. We've got to close. i got to get moving here. I'm going to skip a few things. Verse 6. The crowds with one accord were giving attention to what was said by Philip as they heard and saw the signs which he was performing. Again, Philip goes down and he preaches Christ to them. Oh boy, I've got to skip a whole bunch of stuff to you. The crowds with one accord were giving attention to what was said. Unanimous consent. They gave full attention. What a contrast between these Samaritans and the religious rulers with religious background who plugged their ears and rushed at Stephen and pushed him out of town and stoned him to death. What a contrast. These Samaritans gave full attention to what Philip was saying. These folks embraced the truth that was being proclaimed. They fixed their attention on the importance of what was being proclaimed. The gravity of it. The weight of it. There's an eternity somewhere. Where am I going? Imagine Philip's joy as he preached and these Samaritans were responding to the gospel. And it says, 
For in the case of many who had unclean spirits, they were coming out, out of them, shouting with a loud voice, and many who had been paralyzed and lame were healed. This is just confirming the gospel, confirming the message, authenticating the message that Philip preached. In verse 8, so there was much rejoicing in that city. Great joy. It's actually mega. Okay? It's a pretty... No, it's megas. Megas joy. It was mega joy in the city. Mega joy. I have a question for you. Are you able to count it all joy? Are you able to count it all joy? If you're having a hard time with that, I want to encourage you is to get centered back on Christ, centered back on the gospel. Remember when you first came to faith, believer? Remember when you first came to faith, that joy, that overwhelmed your soul. It's available. What, what, is, what, what does Paul say to the Colossians in Colossians 1, 6, I think it is, 2, 6? For just as you received Christ Jesus as Lord, just as, for just as you received Christ Jesus as Lord, so continue to walk in Him. For a gospel-centered church, it's joy all the way, even in the midst of persecution. It's joy at the propagation of the gospel. To hear the gospel proclaimed, there's joy in that. For the preparation of the gospel, to sit under under the teaching of the word, like we did this Sunday morning and this Sunday night, as we will again. At the preaching of the gospel, it's joy because we get to see people come to faith. And it's joy because of the content of the gospel. Jesus' death, burial, resurrection, His ascendant, the fact that He is ascended on high means there's hope for us. This world isn't our home. It isn't all there is. It isn't even close to being the best. And because of the extent of the gospel, it's extended beyond God's elect people. He came to that which was His own and His own did not receive Him. The offer extends to everyone. And it's joy because God's intent for the Gospel is not to destroy, is not to destroy but to save. We've got to close here. I'll just say it one more time. If, if, your, if your past is robbing your joy, put your past in your past and get focused on the Gospel. If your today is robbing your joy, get focused on the Gospel. If someone else is trying to steal your joy, you know, you know they really can't. All we do is give it away. Get focused on the Gospel. I worked in the same place. I worked in the same industry for over 30 years. I worked at one place for over 20 years. I wasn't a believer when I first began to work there. I became a believer while working there. Everything in my life changed. And it was noticed by the guys I worked with. And they'd ask me, what happened to you? One guy in particular. And I said, if you'd really like to know, I'll tell you. 
I got to share the gospel with that individual. It didn't go so great. And, and, and persecution came. And, and, and junk came. But I stayed gospel-focused. And so even in the midst of that, there was just joy. There was just joy. And I got baggage. I became a believer as an adult. I think it's J. Vernon McGee said, if you knew me completely, you wouldn't want to listen to me. But wait a second. If I knew everything about you, I wouldn't want to be talking to you. We got baggage. We come with it. But we don't, we don't have to live bound to our past. If we're gospel-centered, if we're Christ-centered, it's joy all the way. It's joy all the way. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, I want to thank You for Your people. Thank You for this time. Bless this Word to Your people, Father. Clear up any confusion. Help us to live joyfully as we strive to be a gospel-centered church, as we strive to be gospel-centered people. Help us to understand what that is. The content of the gospel. The extent of the gospel. And Your intent for the gospel. And give us joy as we share that with people that we come into contact with. In Jesus' name, Amen.